0: welcome to the weekend university podcast and this is your host Niall McKeever the weekend university was set up to make the best psychology lectures available to the general public to do this we organized lecture days where attendees get a full day of talks from leading psychologists authors and university professors if you'd be interested in getting early access to our latest psychology lectures and discounts on our live events you can sign up for the early access list at theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. That's theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. This episode featured a lecture from Johan Hari. Johan is the author of two New York Times bestselling books. His first, Chasing the Scream, is currently being adapted into a major Hollywood feature film and into a non-fiction documentary series. His most recent book, Lost Connections, is being translated into 17 languages and has been praised by a broad range of people, including Hillary Clinton, Elton John, and Naomi Klein. His TED Talk, Everything You Think You Know About Addiction Is Wrong, has been viewed more than 25 million times and is one of the most viewed TED Talks of all time. Johan has written for some of the world's leading newspapers and magazines, including The New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, The Guardian, and The Spectator. He's also a regular panelist on HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher. He lives half the year in London and spends the other half of the year traveling to research his books. To read about what Johan is working on now and what you can do to support him, check out www.patreon.com forward slash Johan Enjoy the show!
1: The reason I wanted to write a book about depression and spent so many years researching this is uh, for a quite personal reason. There were these two mysteries that were really hanging over me that I couldn't find the answers to at first. The first was, I'm 39 years old. Every year that I've been alive, depression and anxiety have increased in Britain and across the Western world. I wanted to understand why. and I wanted to understand partly for myself. When I was a teenager, I'd gone to my doctor, And I'd explained that I had this feeling like pain was leaking out of me. And I couldn't control it, I couldn't regulate it, I felt quite ashamed of it. And my doctor told me a story that I now realise was really oversimplified. My doctor said, we know why people feel this way, scientists have proved it. There's a chemical called serotonin in people's brains, it makes them feel good. Uh, Some people are naturally lacking it or have an imbalance in it obviously you're one of them, Uh, all we need to do is give you these drugs, you're going to be fine. So I started taking an antidepressant called uh, Ciroxat, and I got quite a lot of relief um, initially. For a couple of months I felt a lot better, quite a big boost, and then this feeling of pain started to come back. So I went back to my doctor, he said clearly I didn't give you a high enough dose, he gave me a higher dose. Again I felt better, again this feeling of pain came back, and I was really in that cycle of taking the drug, taking a higher dose, feeling a bit better and and so on. Um, Until for 13 years, I was taking the maximum possible dose you're allowed to take. At the end of which, I still felt like shit and I was experiencing all sorts of horrible side effects, huge weight gain, all sorts of problems. And I wanted to understand, well, what's going on here? Because I'm doing everything that I'm being told to do and I'm still in a lot of pain. Um, And there seems to be something going wrong all around me in the wider culture. What's going on here? Can it really be that there's just some malfunction in everyone's brains at the same time? Um, So I decided to go on a long journey to try to find the answer to these mysteries. I ended up travelling over 40,000 miles. I went to interview the leading experts in the world about what causes depression and anxiety and what solves them. And just people have very different perspectives, from an Amish village in Indiana, because the Amish have very low levels of depression, to a city in Brazil, where they banned advertising to see if that would make people feel better, to a university in the United States where they were giving people magic mushrooms to see if that would help. Ask me later. Uh, <laughs> and I learned lots of things. But to me, the, the heart of it is I realized until I went to my doctor when I was a teenager, I thought my depression was all in my head, meaning you know I was just being weak, I needed to man up. And then for the next 13 years, I thought my depression was all in my head meaning it was just a chemical imbalance in my brain. But what I learned is there's scientific evidence for nine different causes of depression and anxiety. Two of them are indeed biological. Your genes can make you more sensitive to these problems, and there are real brain changes that begin when you become depressed that can make it harder to get out. But most of the causes, seven of them, they're not in our heads. They're factors in the way we're living. And that opens up a very different way of understanding why we feel like this and how we can find our way out. And um, part, there were some really difficult bits in this journey. The hardest bit, I think, was the very first bit where I learned, it was the second hardest bit, actually, I'll tell you about the hardest bit in a minute. But the second hardest bit was learning that that story my doctor told me is not true. So when you've got a story about your pain, even when that story isn't working very well for you, you know, at least you feel like you know where you are, right? To me, it's like if you think of your pain as a wild animal. A story puts a leash on it, right? You you understand where things are. And so it was quite shocking to me to go and interview the leading experts on this and discover how wrong that story is. The leading expert at Princeton University, Professor Andrew Skull, says, these are his words, it's deeply misleading and unscientific to say depression is caused by low serotonin. One of the leading experts in Britain, Dr David Healy, said, you can't even say that story's been discredited because it was never credited. There was never a time when half of the scientists in the field believed that was true. The reason we were told that story, the reason it got to me, and I'm guessing lots of the people in this room, is because that's the story that the drug company, pharmaceutical, you know, the pharmaceutical company's PR departments realized was the most effective way of marketing these drugs. Now, that doesn't mean the fact that that story is not true doesn't mean there's no value in chemical antidepressants. Um, I think we need to have a complex, nuanced, and honest conversation about chemical antidepressants. So obviously I spoke to huge numbers of people about this. I looked at the best science. And the leading expert at Harvard Medical School, Professor Irving Kirsch, taught me some of the most important things I think about this. So depression is generally measured by something called the Hamilton scale. I've always felt quite sorry for whoever Hamilton was that we only remember him by how miserable we all are. But anyway, uh, so to give you a sense of the Hamilton scale, the Hamilton scale goes from 1, where you would be dancing around in ecstasy, maybe on ecstasy, to 51, where you would be acutely suicidal. And to give you a sense of movement on the Hamilton scale, if you improve your sleep patterns, you'll generally gain about six points on the Hamilton scale. And if your sleep patterns deteriorate, like when you have a baby, you'll generally go six points the other way. Right? On average, over time, according to the the studies that the pharmaceutical companies wanted us to see and the studies that they didn't want us to see, when you look at all of that data combined, on average, chemical antidepressants move us 1.8 points on the Hamilton scale. Now, it's important to say a few things about that. That's an average. I initially got more, over time I got less, so some people will get more, some people will get less. Also worth saying, 1.8 points ain't nothing, right? If you're in terrible pain, 1.8 points on the Hamilton scale can make a real difference. But it's also important to say, for most people who are depressed and anxious, that's not going to be enough to solve their depression and anxiety. And we know this from lots of evidence. If you look at the long term research into chemical antidepressant use, of which there is shockingly little, but look, for example, at something called the STAR D trial, which is the best evidence we have on the long term effects. Most people who go to their doctor with depression and are given chemical antidepressants become depressed again. Doesn't mean the drug has no value, does mean for most people it's not enough to solve the problem. And there were lots of people I was I found that really threatening, right? I, this is something I had depended on for a really long time. Uh, there was one, several moments, but there was one moment which really helped me to think a bit differently about this. I went to interview a South African psychiatrist called Derek Summerfield. And uh, Dr. Summerfield happened to be in Cambodia in 2001 when they first introduced chemical antidepressants in Cambodia. And the local doctors, the Cambodians, had never heard of these drugs. So they were like, what are they? And Derek explained. And they said to him, Oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? He thought they were going to talk about some kind of herbal remedy, right? Like ginkgo biloba or something like that. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who one day, he worked in the rice fields, and one day he stood on a landmine and he got his leg blown off. So they gave him an artificial limb, and a few months later, he went back to work in the rice fields. But apparently, it's really painful to work underwater with an artificial limb. I'm guessing it's pretty traumatic for this guy, for obvious reasons. He's going back into the field where he was blown up. He started to cry all day. Within a short time, he refused to get out of bed. Classic depression. They said to Derek, well, that's when we gave him an antidepressant. And he said, what? They explained that they went and sat with him. They listened to him. They realised that his pain made sense wasn't some irrational malfunction. They figured if they bought him a cow, he could become a dairy farmer, wouldn't be in this position that was causing him so much distress. So they bought him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his crying stopped. Within a month, his depression was gone. They said to Derek, so you see, Doctor, that cow, that was an antidepressant. That's what you mean, right? (laughs) Now, if you've been raised to think about depression the way we have, that it's just a biological problem in your brain, that sounds like a joke. I went to my doctor for an antidepressant. He gave me a cow. But what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively is what the leading medical body in the world, the World Health Organization, has been trying to tell us for years. If you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not crazy, you're not a machine with broken parts, you're a human being with unmet needs. And what you need is love and practical support to get those deeper needs met. Everyone in this room knows, you guys all know, that you've got natural physical needs. Obviously, you need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. If I took any of them away from you, you'd be in a lot of trouble really quickly, right? There's equally strong evidence that human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. Our culture is good at lots of things. I'm glad to be alive today but we've been getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs for people. And it's not the only thing that's going on by any means, but I think it's the key reason why this crisis is rising and rising as each year passes. So that can sound a bit, I don't know, abstract. So I want to give you some concrete examples. One of the causes of depression and anxiety that I write about is disconnection from other people. We are the loneliest society there's ever been. There's a study that asks Americans... How many close friends do you have who you could call on in a crisis? And when they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer is none. There are more people who have nobody to turn to than any other option. We are just behind the Americans in the international league tables of loneliness. And I wanted to understand this better, so I spent a lot of time interviewing an amazing man called Professor John Cassiopo who's at the University of Chicago, tragically he just died, he wasn't an old man, it's a terrible loss. He was the leading expert in the world on loneliness and and Professor Cassiopo proved many things. So he showed for a human being, if you become acutely lonely, that releases as much of the stress hormone cortisol into your bloodstream as if you were punched in the face by a stranger. Being acutely lonely is devastating for your health. It's as bad for you as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, or being really quite obese. And I remember asking him, why? Why is being lonely so stressful? And him saying, why do we exist? Right? Many reasons. One of them is, our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing. They weren't bigger than the animals they took down a lot of the time. They weren't faster than the animals they took down a lot of the time. But they were much better at banding together into groups and cooperating. Just like bees evolved to need a hive, humans evolved to need a tribe. And we are the first humans ever to try to disband our tribes. And if you think about those circumstances where we evolved, if you got cut off from the tribe, you were stressed and flooded with cortisol and anxious for a really good reason, right? You were about to die. You were in terrible danger. Those are still the impulses we have as human beings. That's the species we are. That's what we need. When I learned all this, and, of course, Professor Cassioppo proved that loneliness causes depression. It's just not not just a correlation. Of course, depression can also cause loneliness because you retreat. There's a reciprocal relationship. But he proved that depression causes loneliness. So I was thinking, well, what's the the antidepressant for that, right? If you think about the cow analogy, what's the cow for that problem? Discovered there is one. There's one not very far from where we are. Um, So one of the heroes of My Book Lost Connections is, is a man called Dr. Sam Everington, who's a doctor in East London, Poor part of East London. He's a GP. It's actually where I lived for a long, a long time. Though sadly, Sam was never my doctor. And Sam was really uncomfortable. He had loads of patients coming to him with terrible depression and anxiety. And he'd been told in medical school, even though he knew the science was much more sophisticated, just tell them they've got a chemical imbalance that they can't understand more sophisticated stories than that, um, and just drug them, right? Um, And And Sam was really uncomfortable with that. Like me, he's not opposed to chemical antidepressants. He thinks they do have some value. But he could see they weren't solving the problem for a lot of his patients. So he decided to pioneer a different approach. One day, uh, a woman came to him called Lisa Cunningham, who I got to know quite well. Lisa had been shut away in her home with crippling depression and anxiety for seven years. And Sam said to Lisa, don't worry, I'll carry on giving you these drugs. I'm also going to prescribe something else. I'm going to prescribe for you to take part in a group. There was an area behind the doctor's surgery that was known as Dogshit Alley, which gives you a sense of what it was like, uh, backed onto a park. He said to Lisa, what I'd like you to do is come and turn up a couple of times a week, meet with a group of other depressed and anxious people, I'm going to turn out and support you, and we're going to turn Dogshit Alley into something nice. The first meeting they had, Lisa was physically sick with anxiety, literally. But a couple of things happened as the group kept on meeting. The first thing was they discovered they had something to talk about that wasn't how shit they felt, right? Most of the time with depressed and anxious people, we either drug them or we give them a place to talk about their pain, and both those things have value. But in this group, they had something completely different. They decided they were going to learn gardening. They started to get their fingers in the soil. They started to learn the rhythms of the seasons. These were inner-city extenders, They didn't know anything about these things, right? Um, they, 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 started to get, they started to apply for a gardening qualification. And another thing happened, they started to form a tribe, they started to form a group, and they did what human beings do when we form tribes. They started to solve each other's problems. For example, it's an extreme example, there's one guy in the group who'd been thrown out of his home and he was sleeping on the night bus, right? Everyone else in the group was like, of course you're depressed if you're sleeping on the night bus. They started pressuring the local council, Tower Hamlets Council, to get this guy a home. They succeeded, they got him a home. It was the first time they'd done something for someone else in years. It made them feel great. The way Lisa put it to me, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. There's a study in Norway of a very similar program which is part of a growing body of evidence that found it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. I think for an obvious reason. It was dealing with some of the reasons, the disconnection from other people, the disconnection from the natural world, ask me about that if you want, that were making them so depressed in the first place. And this is something I saw all over the world, from Sydney to San Francisco to Sao Paulo. The most effective strategies for dealing with depression and anxiety are the ones that deal with the reasons why we're in this pain in the first place. Keep going back to that key point that's made by the World Health Organization, your pain makes sense. Um, One of the other causes of depression anxiety that I I learned about was I noticed loads of people I know who are depressed and anxious. Their depression and anxiety focuses around their work. So I started to think, well, what's the evidence about this? How do people actually feel about their work? Maybe my friends are unusual. I looked at the the evidence, the massive opinion study by Gallup of this. And what they found was 13% of us, 1-3%, like our jobs most of the time. 63% of us are what they called sleep working. You don't like it, you don't hate it, you just kind of tolerate it. And 24% of us hate and fear our jobs. This thing that 87% of us don't like doing is spreading over more and more of our lives. The average British person now answers their first work email at 7.47 a.m. and leaves work at 7.15 p.m. I started to think, could the fact that we don't like the thing we're doing most of the time have some effect on our mental health? So I started to look for who'd done research on this, what evidence is there on this. And there's an amazing man, an Australian social scientist, called Professor Michael Marmot, who discovered the key factor, it's not the only one, but the key factor that causes depression at work. If any of you guys go to work tomorrow morning and you are controlled, so you have low or no choices about the work you do, you are much more likely to become depressed and anxious. You're actually even more likely to die of a stress-related heart attack. And I think I'm going a little bit beyond what Professor Marmot says here, but I think this is related to this idea of our needs, right? People need to feel their lives have meaning. Mm -hmm. And if you're controlled, you can't create meaning out of your work. And at first when I learned this from Professor Marmot and lots of other experts, I actually misunderstood what they were telling me. I thought they were saying, okay, you've got this elite 13% of people, get to have nice lives and the rest of us are like condemned to the shit, right? And I was like, well, hang on a minute. You know, my dad was a bus driver. My brother's a delivery guy. My grandmother's job was to clean toilets. Are you saying that they're just condemned to these miserable lives? And Professor Marmot said to me, no, Johan, you don't understand. It's not work that makes you a bit depressed. It's being controlled at work. And so I went on a journey to see, well, what's the antidepressant for that? Turns out there's a, a very good one. If I explain it, you're going to think for a minute that I'm saying you should all go and do this tomorrow. And you're going to be like... I can't do this. And you're right, most people can't. This is an argument for structural change in how our society works, rather than just individuals doing it. So I went to Baltimore and met a woman called Meredith Keogh. Meredith used to go to bed every Sunday night, sick with anxiety. She had an office job. It wasn't, as she would tell you, it wasn't the worst office job in the world. She wasn't being bullied or harassed or anything. But it was controlled, it was monotonous, and she couldn't bear the thought this was going to be the next 40 years of her life. So one day with our husband, Josh, Meredith, Meredith did this quite bold thing. Josh had worked in bike stores since he was a teenager. You know, it's pretty controlled work in the US. It's even more insecure than here. You don't even get health care, that kind of thing. And one day, Josh was with his colleagues in this bike store, and they just asked themselves, what does our boss actually do? They quite like their boss. He wasn't the worst person in the world, right? But they were like, we seem to fix all the bikes, and he seems to make all the money, Right? They decided they were going to set up a bike store of their own, but they would work on a different principle. The place they'd worked before was a corporation. Most people in this room will work in corporations. You know how it works. The boss at the top is like the commander of an army, and you've all got to obey him, right, or her. Um, they decided they were going to set up a business that works on a very, uh, by the way, that, the, mod, the corporation, very recent human invention. Uh, they decided they were going to work in a different way. Their business isn't a corporation. It's a democratic cooperative. That means they don't have a boss. They take decisions together about the direction of the business by voting once a week. They share out the good tasks and the shitty tasks, so no one gets stuck with the shitty tasks. Uh, they, of course, share the profits. And one of the things that was fascinating to me, spending time in their very successful business, Baltimore Bicycle Works, was how many of them, totally in line with Professor Marmot's findings, said, talked about how they used to feel depressed and anxious in this previous way of working when they were controlled, but didn't feel depressed and action, anxious in a workplace where they had agency, where they could take decisions, where the things they wanted could be converted into the things around them. And it's important to say, it's not like they quit their jobs fixing bikes and went off to, I don't know, become Beyonce's backing singers, right? They fixed bikes before, they fixed bikes now. The difference is now they've got control over their work. And I, when I learned that and I spent a lot of time there and went to visit other democratic cooperatives, I kept thinking, how many people do you know who were depressed and anxious, who'd feel really differently if they knew that tomorrow they were going into a workplace that they controlled, um, where they had a say, where if there has to be a boss, he's elected by them and accountable to them. That's a very different way of spending most of our waking lives. It's a much more empowering one. There's no reason why we should be structuring our societies in this way that is making us feel so bad, right? Everyone in this room has lived through incredible... Uh, civilising transformations, right? I'm gay. I didn't even hear the concept of gay marriage until I was 20. Um, The women in this room don't need me to mansplain this to them, but, like, my grandmothers, when they got married, weren't even allowed to have bank accounts in their own names, right? We've all lived through civilising transformations that people fought for. I think this is a civilising transformation that we should be fighting for. I think it's an antidepressant. Um, I want to talk to you about the two hardest causes of depression and anxiety that I learned about for for Lost Connections. Um, The second one in particular is is difficult to talk about, but I make myself do it for reasons that I'll explain. Um, So, the the first one is, everyone knows, the reason I found it difficult is because I could see how much they played out in my own life. Everyone knows Junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick. Right? I say this with no sense of superiority, uh, between the ages of 19 and 29 I basically lived on KFC and I, I had a, a real low point about this on Christmas Eve 2009 uh, when it was lunchtime and I went to my local KFC at the end of Brick Lane and uh, I said my order, which is so disgusting I won't repeat it, and the guy behind the counter said, oh Johan I'm really glad you're here. I was like, alright. And He said, wait a minute, wait a minute. And he went off behind the like fries and everything. And he came back with every member of staff and a fucking massive Christmas card in which they'd written to our best customer. They'd all written these little in jokes about my me. And, 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 and one of the reasons my heart sank is that I suddenly realized this isn't even the fried chicken shop I come to the most. Um, <laughs> but but the, um, the. So just like we all know, junk food has taken over our diets, made us sick. Interestingly, a kind of junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick. So for thousands of years, philosophers have said, if you think life is about money and status and how you look to other people, you're going to feel like shit, right? That's not an exact quote from Confucius, but that is the gist of what he said, right? Uh, But weirdly, nobody had scientifically investigated this to see if it was true, until about 25 years ago, an incredible man I got to know, called Professor Tim, Tim Kasser, who's at Knox College in Illinois, began to research this. Professor Kasser showed lots of things. So every human being, all of you guys, everyone we've ever met, is a mixture of two kinds of motive, to put it crudely. So imagine you play the piano. Let's imagine you play the piano in the morning because you love it and it gives you joy. That's called an intrinsic motive to play the piano, right? You're not doing it to get anything out of it. You're doing it because that is the thing you love, right? Okay, now imagine you play the piano, not because you love it, but because your parents are pressuring you to be a piano maestro or um, I don't know in a dive bar to pay the rent or to impress a man I don't know there might be some piano fetishist out there right that would be an extrinsic reason to play the piano you're not doing the experience because the experience is valuable to you you're doing it to get something else out of it professor Kasser showed a lot of things about this firstly we all have both and we move throughout our lives right we're all a mixture but he showed a few things firstly He showed the more you are driven by these extrinsic values, the more likely you are to become depressed and anxious by a really quite significant amount. He also showed that as a culture, we have become much more driven by these extrinsic values, right? Flick through Instagram any day of the week, you'll see exactly what I mean, right? We've all become obsessed with curating how we look to other people by externalizing our experiences rather than finding the experiences that are valuable and meaningful. Um, And and there are lots of reasons why uh, these these extrinsic values, these junk values, are making us depressed. And I go through lots of them in the book that Professor Kasser discovered, but I'll just name a couple. One is, we know, one of the things that makes human human beings feel really, really good, is when we get into what are called flow states. That when you're doing something you love, for me it's writing, for you it might be running, definitely not running for me, Um, whatever it is that you love, and you're doing it, and you're, in the zone and time seems to fall away and you're just in that moment, right? This is this, these flow states are essential for, to be psychologically healthy. What Professor Kasser showed is the more you're driven by these junk values, the less and less you will have, experience flow states. I think for a reason that he explained quite well. Imagine you're playing the piano in the morning because you love it, right? And then imagine you suddenly think, How is this piano playing gonna look when someone posts a clip on Facebook later today? Am I the best piano player in London today? How much am I gonna get paid for this piano playing? You can see how that would jolt you out of the flow state into this much more anxious, external, extrinsic state. Right? We're all becoming much more like that. I'll give you another example. This might sound like a slightly cheap example, but I think it does illustrate it well. Um, In 2009, Melania Trump went to speak at NYU. I can't can't imagine why. And one of the students, One of the students said to her, would you have married Donald Trump if he wasn't rich? And she said, do you think he would have married me if I wasn't beautiful? Think what that reveals about Donald and Melania Trump's relationship. It is entirely driven by these extrinsic junk values. So Melania knows if she gets fat, she's out, right? Donald Trump knows if he loses his power and status, she's out, right? What this shows is, and that's an, the, the Trumps are an extreme example in all sorts of ways, but we've all become much more driven by extrinsic values, and one of the effects of that is that our relationships become more brittle and more contingent, and that makes us feel more anxious and less secure, less like we have solid ground on which to stand. Compare that to, say, Barack and Michelle Obama, who I'm sure would say... I'd love the other one, even if they were burned in a fire, became obese, were homeless, whatever, right? You can see how that kind of relationship driven by intrinsic values is more nourishing and and, and less depressing, right? So we've all become more like that. I talk about in the book how we can overcome junk values, and, and Professor Cass has been part of really interesting experiments that shows how to do that. I don't have time to do that now, but just that there's a, there are really powerful programs about how we can overcome this toxicity. The hardest cause of depression and anxiety for me to learn about um, was one that to explain it, I have to tell you a story. And for a minute, you're gonna think, why is he telling us this story and a talk about depression? What has this got to do with anything? Um, it led to a breakthrough in depression that I don't think you can understand if you don't know the story. In the mid 1980s, a man called, a wonderful doctor called Vincent Felitti was approached by Kaiser Permanente, who were the big not-for-profit medical provider in San Diego. And they said, we got a big problem. All over the US at that time, but particularly in California, there was a massive and growing obesity crisis. And they said to him, everything we are trying to solve this is not working. We give people diet advice, we give them exercise advice, and every year they get fatter, right? They gave him quite a big budget. They said, do blue skies research, figure out what the hell we can do about this, right? So Dr. Felitti started working with 250 extremely obese people, people who weighed more than 400 pounds. And he's talking to them and he's talking to them. And one day, actually, weirdly, thanks to Margaret Thatcher, he has an idea, right? So he'd seen on the news uh, the Northern Ireland hunger strikers. Um, and you might remember these were um, former, well, members of the IRA who were uh, denied some of the privileges they'd had in prison, who were starving themselves in protest. And Dr. Felitti noticed, well, oh, it took them quite a long time to die. So he had this idea. He figured... If what would happen, if they had this idea, which actually seems really stupid and in one sense is, what would happen if really obese people just stopped eating and we gave them the nutritional supplements they need, like vitamin C so they don't get scurvy or whatever, would they just burn through the fat stores in their body until they were down to a healthy weight? So, with obviously super, super, super medical supervision, they decided to try doing this. And the fascinating thing is, in one sense it worked. The people in the program, most of them, lost loads of weight. There's a woman, I'm going to call her Susan to protect her medical confidentiality, who went down from being more than 400 pounds to 138 pounds. Everyone's like, congratulating Vincent for saving her life. And then one day something happened that no one expected. Susan just freaked out fled to, K- actually I don't think it was KFC, it was projection on my part, fled to a, fled to a fast food place, started stuffing it and very quickly was not quite where she was but back to a dangerous way and Vincent called her in and said, Susan, wh- what happened? And she looked down, she said, I don't know, I don't know, she felt very ashamed. He said, well, tell me about the day that you cracked. Did anything happen that day? Turns out something happened that day that hadn't happened to Susan the whole time she was obese. A man had hit on her in a bar, not in a predatory or awful way, but he'd expressed sexual interest in her. She'd felt really frightened she'd fled. At a later session, Vincent said to Susan, Susan, when did you start to put on your weight? Turned out it was when she was, she was 11. He said, well, did anything happen when you were 11 that didn't happen when you were 9, didn't happen when you were 14? And she looked down and she said... That's when my grandfather started raping me. He started to interview everyone in the programme. He discovered that 55% of them had put on their extreme weight in the aftermath of being sexually assaulted or abused, which seemed to him an extraordinary number. That's obviously much higher than the proportion of the general population who'd been sexually abused. Um, He started to speak to the patients about this, trying to make sense of it. And he began to realise this thing, that looks so irrational, and in one sense, of course, is really bad for you, obesity, was actually performing a function. Um, it was protecting the individuals from sexual attention. As Susan put it to him, overweight is overlooked, and that's what I need to be. But this was a small group, right? It's 250 people, maybe this is some freak result. So Dr. Felitti went to the... Um, the Centre for Disease Control, the CDC, one of the biggest bodies in the world who fund research on this sort of thing, and he got funding to do a much bigger study. Everyone who came to Kaiser Permanente for healthcare across a whole year, no matter what, for headaches, broken legs, schizophrenia, the whole lot, was given two questionnaires. First questionnaire said, did any of these 10 bad things happen to you when you were a kid? Things like sexual abuse, physical abuse, neglect, cruelty, that kind of thing. And then they were asked... Have you had any of these 10 problems as an adult? Things like uh, obesity, depression, suicide attempts, addiction. When the CDC calculated up these figures, they were just completely stunned. For every category of childhood trauma you experienced, you were two to four times more likely to become depressed and anxious. But as you got into multiple categories, the figures exploded. So if you had experienced six categories of childhood trauma you were 3,100% more likely to have attempted suicide as an adult and 4,600% more likely to have an addiction problem. These are staggering figures. You don't get these figures very often in, in epidemiology. But, you know, this is a hard thing to say, but if you met Dr. Felitti, if he were standing here now, you would really like him. He's a hugely admirable person. But I remember the first time I saw him in San Diego, walking out and feeling unbelievably angry and enraged. And I was like, why am I so angry with this man? I remember almost hitting someone as I left. And I think it helped me to understand why I had stayed with this very simplistic story that depression is just a chemical imbalance for so long, even though I knew in my heart it was way too simplistic. Um, When I was a child, my mother had been quite ill and my dad was in a different country and I'd experienced some very extreme acts from an adult in my life. And I, I didn't want to think about that. I didn't want to integrate that into how I thought about I didn't want to give this individual power over me now. Um, I just didn't, didn't want that to be in my head. Um, but one of the reasons I'm really glad I kept talking to Dr. Felitti is because of what he discovered next. So if you had indicated on the form that you'd experienced some kind of childhood trauma, Your doctor was told, don't call them back in. But next time they come back in, say to them a script that goes something like this. I see that when you were a child, you were sexually abused, or whatever the abuse was. I'm really sorry that happened to you. That should never have happened. Would you like to talk about it? And a significant minority of people didn't want to talk about it. Most people did want to talk about it. And they wanted to talk about it, on average, for five minutes. And at the end, it was randomised. Some of them were then referred to go onto a therapist to talk about it more. Some of them weren't. What was incredible was just those five minutes of a trusted authority figure saying, I'm so sorry. This should never have happened to you. And listening, that alone led to a really significant fall in depression and anxiety. And the people who were referred to a therapist, it led to a bigger fall. And I wanted to understand why, and I think, I think it's related to a, a bigger body of evidence. There's a wonderful man called Professor James Pennebaker at Florida State University who's done a lot of research on this, which is about shame. Shame destroys people. It physically and psychologically corrodes people. We know, for example, during the AIDS crisis, openly gay men died on average two years later than closeted gay men, even when they got health care at the same time. Shame is terribly destructive. And giving people a place to release their shame, to see they will not be judged. In fact, they'll be loved and held and valued. That is a really powerful antidepressant. Um, I want to talk to you about one last thing. Obviously, I learned a lot from all sorts of different experts all over the world. But there's one place I kept going back to all through the writing of this book that, to me, I think taught me as much as these experts, which I want to tell you about this place and what happened there. So, in the summer of 2011, uh, uh, a woman called Nuria Cengiz climbed out of her wheelchair on her council estate in Berlin and stuck a sign in her window. The sign said something like, I got a notice saying I'm going to be evicted next Thursday night. So, on Wednesday, I'm going to kill myself. Nuria lived on the ground floor. So people saw this sign, but this is a big anonymous council estate. Um, It's a quite poor part of Berlin, and basically only three groups of people have lived there for a long time. Uh, Recent Muslim immigrants like like Nuria, uh, gay men, and punk squatters. And as you can imagine, these three groups looked at each other with a bit of incomprehension, right? No one knew Nuria, barely anyone knew anyone else. But people started to knock on her door and say, oh, we saw your sign, do you need any help? And Nuria said, fuck you, I don't want any help, I'm going to kill myself. But they got talking people outside her flat. And one day, you might remember, this is the summer of the uprising in Egypt. One guy had just been watching that news, and he had an idea. He said, you know, there's a big thoroughfare that runs into the centre of this housing project, this council estate. The place is called Cottey. The big thoroughfare that runs into the centre of Berlin, into Mitte. And one day, one of them said, you know, if we just block the road, and we protest, and they were all pissed off because everyone's rents were going up, and a lot of people were being evicted. And we protest, and we bring Nuria out, They'll probably a bit of media attention, you know, she'll be in the news. They'll probably let her stay in her flat. Maybe there'll be a bit of pressure so these rents won't keep going up for all of us. So they decided to do it. They blocked the road, and Nuria was like, I'm going to kill myself anyway. I may as well let them push me in the middle of the road. <laughs> she stood there. The media came. They talked to her. Bit of a fuss in Berlin that day. Gets to the end of the day, and the police said, OK, you've had your fun. Take it down. Go home. And the people in Cotti said, well, hang on a minute. You haven't told Nuria she gets to stay. And actually, we want a rent freeze for our whole council estate, right? So when we've got those guarantees, we'll take this barricade down. And until then, we're staying. But of course, they knew the minute they left, the police would just tear it down. Everything would go back to how it was. So one of my favorite people at Cotty, a person called Tanya Gartner, who Tanya is one of the punk squatters. She's pretty hardcore. She wears tiny uh, mini skirts, even in Berlin winters, right? She's hardcore. Uh, Tanya went to her flat, uh, up to her flat. She came down and she brought a klaxon, you know those things that make a really loud noise. And she said, okay, what we're gonna do is we're gonna drop a timetable to man this barricade 24 hours a day until we have got, got the things we we're demanding. Uh, and if the police come to take it down, let off the klaxon, we'll all come down from our flats and we'll all stop them. So people started to sign up to man this barricade, people who'd never met each other, right? Really unlikely pairings. So Tanya in her little tiny, basically a belt, was, te- was paired with Nuria in her full hijab, right? And they sit there, if I remember right, they got the Wednesday night shifts. They sit there and they're like, we got nothing to talk about, right? Super awkward. But as the weeks went on, they discovered they had something really powerful in common. Nuria had come to Berlin when she was 17 from a village in Turkey with her two young children. And her job was to raise enough money to send back home for a husband who'd remained in Turkey. Sitting there in the cold in the night in Cottie, Nuria told Tanya something she'd never told anyone. After she'd been in Berlin for a year, she got word from home that her husband had died. She'd always told people he died of a heart attack. Actually, he died of tuberculosis, which was seen as a disease of poverty. It was seen as shameful. That's when Tanya told Nuria something she didn't talk about very often. She'd been thrown out by a middle-class family when she was 15. She'd made her way to one of the punk squats in Cottie. She got pregnant. They both realised they'd been alone together. They'd been children with children themselves in this place alone. They realised how much they had in common. There were these pairings happening all over Cotty. There was a, uh, a, a young Turkish-German German lad who, who um, kept being nearly thrown out of school because they said he had ADHD. Uh, he got paired with this really grumpy old white German guy who said he loved Stalin and didn't believe in b- direct action, but in this case he'd make an exception. Uh, and they were paired, they sat there through the nights, he started to help him with his homework. Um, opposite this, this, this council estate, there's a gay club called Zudblock, uh, which is run by a man I love called Richard Stein, who, to give you a sense of what he's like, uh, the previous place he owned was called Café Anal. And um, I've always thought you wouldn't want to have a sandwich from Café Anal, right? But... Uh, and when they'd opened this gay club a couple of years before the protests began, you know, as you can imagine, there's a lot of very conservative, religious Muslim people. Some people were really pissed off. They'd actually had their windows smashed. When the protests began, after a little while, people at Zudblock, the gay club, started saying, you know, you guys, you, they gave loads of their furniture to the protest. They started saying, you know, you guys, you could have your meetings in our club if you want. We'll give you food. We'll give you drink. And at that point, even the like lefties in Cottey were like, we're not going to get these very religious conservative Muslims to come and have meetings underneath a poster for fisting though, right? It's not going to happen. But it did start happening. As one of the women there said to me, we all realised we had to take these small steps to understand each other, to know each other. After the protest had been going on for about a year, one day a guy turned up at the protest. He's in his early 50s at that time. He was called Tunkai. And when you meet Tonkai, it's clear he's got some kind of cognitive difficulties. He'd been living homeless. But he's also got an amazing energy about him. And he started helping out. And he united everyone, the Muslims, the gays, and the punks. And after a while, by this time, they had turned the barricade into a permanent structure in the middle of the road, right, with a roof and everything. And people were like, you know, you should, they said to Tunkai, Kai, you should just live here. We don't want you to be homeless. We, we Just stay here. So he started living there. He became a much-loved staple of the, the, the camp. And um, after he'd been there for about nine months. One day, the police came to inspect. They would do this every now and then. And Tunkai Kai doesn't like it when people argue. He thought the police were arguing. So he went to try to hug one of the police officers. They thought he was attacking them so they arrested him. At that point it was discovered Tung Kai had been shut away in a psychiatric hospital for 20 years, often in a padded cell. He'd escaped one day, he'd lived on the streets for a month and then he'd found his way to Koti. At which point they took him back to the psychiatric hospital. Then. The whole of this kotti movement turned itself into a kind of free Tunkai movement, right? They descend on this psychiatric hospital at the other side of Berlin. And I remember these psychiatrists being like, what is this? They've got these women in hijabs, these very camp gay men and these punks <laughs> demanding the release of someone they've had shut away for 20 years. They're like, what? And I remember Uli, one of the protesters, saying to them, but you don't love him. We love him. He doesn't belong with you. He belongs with us. And I remember thinking, how many of us, if someone came and carried us away, would have hundreds of people descending, saying, no, you don't get to do this. We love this person and we're going to look after this person. Um, Many things happened at Cotty. They got Tung back. It took a while. They got a rent freeze for their entire council estate. They launched a referendum initiative to hold down rents across the city. It got the largest number of written signatures in the history of the city of Berlin. But the last time I saw Nuria, I remember her saying to me, you know, it's really glad, I'm really glad I got to stay in my neighbourhood, that's great. I gained so much more than that. I was surrounded by these amazing people all along, and I would never have known. I remember talking to another one of the Turkish German women there, Neriman, Neriman Manker, and she said to me, when I grew up in Turkey, I grew up in a village, and I called my whole village home. And then I came to live in the Western world. And I learned that what you're meant to call home here is just your four walls. And then this whole protest began. And I started to call this whole place and all these people my home. And, and she'd realised that in some sense, in this culture, we are homeless, right? You need to feel you belong. Our sense of home is not big enough for that sense of belonging. The Bosnian writer Alexander Heyman said... Home is where people notice when you're not there. And and the thing that was so clear to me in Cottey, think about how distressed these people were, right? Nuria was about to kill herself. Um, Tung was shut away in a padded cell. Loads of them were depressed and anxious. Um, They didn't, most of them, they didn't need to be drugged. They needed to be together. They needed to be connected to the people around them, to a sense of purpose and meaning, to a sense of a future, to a feeling that people cared about them and loved them and valued them, that they had a culture that made sense. And I remember, the, I remember the last, one of the last times I saw Tanya, we were outside the gay club Zublock, and she, and she said to me, you know, when you're all alone and you feel like shit, you think there's something wrong with you. But what we did is we came out of our corner crying, And we started to fight and we realised we were surrounded by people who felt the same way. And we realised how strong we were. I remember thinking then and thinking a lot since, all this depression and anxiety we're experiencing, this is not a malfunction, right? This is a signal. This is a signal that something has gone deeply wrong in the way we're living. What we've been doing for the last 30 years is is we've been insulting that signal. We've been pathologising that signal. We've been acting like it's a sign of madness, something that needs to be drugged into submission. And while there's some value for the drugs, what we need to do is start listening to that signal and honouring it and hearing what that signal is telling us because it's telling us something we really need to hear. Thanks very much. (laughs) Cheers. Who wants to ask questions. Should we have a woman who asks a question first? Because I've noticed the... Patriarchy tends to dominate when we go to questions. Sorry, apologies to men, but we've had our way for like 2,000 years. Great. Hello. I've, I've
2: just got a
1: quick question. You oh, I think you need to hold it a bit closer, I'm so oh, deaf. When Great. you referred to
2: the work of Dr. Felitti, is that
1: the same as the ACE studies, the Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he's the guy who discovered that whole thing. And uh, I forgot to say, there's this great, uh, wonderful thing that one of his colleagues, Robert, Dr. Robert Ander, said to me. He said, uh, I think about it all the time, he said, uh, it applies more widely than just the ACEs study, but he worked on that as well. He said, um, when someone is, is showing something like depression or anxiety or addiction or obesity, he said, we need to stop asking what's wrong with you and start asking what happened to you. So a really good way of putting it. Great. That was an easy question. Great. <laughs> Anyone else want to ask anything? Great. Uh, hi. Hi, hello. Really interesting, passionate talk. Thank you. Thanks. Do you know how you say it? Okay, I'm just, my hearing is, I got off a plane recently and my hearing has not gone back to normal. So if you hold it, yeah. Oh. Sorry. Ah, great. Hello. Thank you. Ah, again. great. <laughs> you have a voice.
2: So, really stressful environment, I've been in it for about six years and um, chatting to a few people here today, we're finding that in the workplace there's always a bully, various different types, it's very difficult to sustain and I've had to leave my job which initially I enjoyed because of the pressures and the stress on various managers Um, and I was wondering what I'm looking to do now thinking about leaving the NHS. I'm really interested in your cooperative idea, how would somebody start, where do you go to a careers advisor, I struggle with depression and anxiety and it's been exacerbated because of work, so where do you go from here, how would you...
1: It's a really good question, yeah. And, uh, funny enough, my sister was in exactly the same situation. My sister was a psychiatric nurse in the NHS for, for years, and it was just unbearable. The, 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 comp- the combination of the absolutely desperate need, uh, she, she's in the north of England, absolutely desperate need, the cutting, the massive pressure from managers downwards so people couldn't exercise their own judgement, the bullying, like it was just a, a, a horror show. She's actually left now, she's... Um, Counselor at a university, and, and her mental health has really improved. You know, uh, well, it's, it's ironic, a is it, yeah, exactly, yeah. But
2: it's tick boxes, and they've got money for that. Um, they they provide a confidential care group of counselors where you
1: can phone, but yet the supportive um,
2: level is, is 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 very very little from the supervisor got a great service manager, but ultimately the supervisor that made decisions, and her ideas conflicted against the service manager. So it's very, very complicated, but.
1: Yeah, so I, I think our public services are a really good place to actually start modelling this, this cooperative model, right? And there's a really interesting place. So there's a model that began in the US that's now being done in Preston, I think is, might be, you might be interested in looking at. So they did this modelling, I went to see it in Cleveland. So Cleveland is um, part of the United States, it's just been devastated by you know, deindustrialization, all sorts of things. Um, and they did this really interesting model. So they, they, they started working with people who... Um, were uh, formerly incarcerated people, people who'd been in prison, who were finding it very hard to get jobs when they came out. And um, this it, guy, uh, Ted Live, his name is very really interesting guy, pioneered this approach. He approached the hospital... Initially, it was the hospitals in Cleveland. There's a lot of... Uh, one of the things that keeps the economy going is they have a lot of specialist medical care there. He approached them and said, OK, your job is, you know, you're meant to keep people healthy. Uh, we've got these... But at the moment you, um, all your cleaning, all your food is supplied by these organisations, by these corporations that actually make people feel terrible, make them feel like shit, right? So he said, initially began saying, we're going to set up a democratic cooperative run by formerly incarcerated people, the staff will all be formerly incarcerated, it's a democratic cooperative, and we want to do all your laundry. That was how it began, and they said, any profit we make we will invest into expanding the circle of cooperatives, right? It's a really clever model. So now, all the food in hospitals in Cleveland, all the laundry is done by democratic cooperatives, and they've expanded that, so it's now... Also, they've just expanded to do loads of renewable energy, fitting buildings with renewable energy. It's really interesting. And there's a wonderful... I've not met this guy... There's a wonderful councillor in Preston, which is fun enough, where my sister lives as well, um, where in the north, the north, the typical Londoner, the north, right, above, um, but the, um, where, um, where they, they're adopting that model in Britain. So I think we should be really fighting and campaigning to get these models. And I think the NHS should be democratic cooperative. I think our schools should be democratic cooperatives. I think all the, you know, one of my closest friends is a primary school teacher and they get the same shit that you're talking about, you know, uh, except with tiny humans thrown into the mix as well. Um, so, yeah, I think you're totally right. So if you email me, I can shoot some people who are doing interesting work on this. It's, my email's just chasingthescream at gmail.com. It's the name of my, my previous book. But I think you're totally right to want to do that. And, and the hunger for that is, I mean, doesn't take long for someone, you know, even if you think about the phrase, show him who's boss, right? That's never a nice thing to say, is it, right? You think about the whole nature of the way we work... Is one of the deep deep factors driving this depression. And we're all becoming much more controlled. I recently spoke to someone who works in an Amazon factory in the United States where you know, I don't know if you know this, they now where um, yeah, they're tagged like they're criminals, and they're monitored, and they're only allowed a certain amount of stationary time, just standing still. They're allowed a tiny number of toilet breaks, they're, you know, I mean they really are, and when they leave at the end of the day, they're it's calculated out how much time they spent walking and standing still, and why were you still for three minutes at this point? I mean, you know, and, and work is becoming more and more controlled, except for a kind of elite who are being more freed up by work. You've actually got. Yeah. Sorry, hold it to the. Sorry, I had to do something
2: called a time in motion. So each element of my job, we had a stopwatch to start, stop. And none of
1: it was used. You know. I shouldn't really say this, but uh, I recently got asked to speak to a management consultancy, and so I went to listen to the speeches before me. I thought, has anyone been to one of these things? What a lot of bollocks they talk! My God, it's literally anyone in this room. If you gave them half an hour and said just Google the word leadership and come up with any old shit, it would be better than what these people were saying. I mean, it's just the most extraordinary, it's the most unscientific rubbish. And of course, it makes people feel terrible. But sometimes. Sometimes the case is made, right, against this stuff by saying, well, this makes people inefficient, right? Actually, the things you're proposing make people less efficient. And I feel a bit anxious about this. I think the evidence is that it does make people less efficient. But actually, I don't think that's the way to argue it. Even if it did make people less, more efficient, it's an inhumane and brutal way to t- treat people, right? We, we always do this thing where we prioritise the kind of business interests rather than going, well, hang on, we're humans. We have one life to live. Uh, We should be treating people well and not making them depressed and anxious. And if that means you make a bit less money, well, sorry, mate. You're going to have to make a bit less money, right? And I think we need to kind of restore these human values. It's a bit like, you know, whenever... Uh, George Monbiot has written really well about this. The Guardian writes, uh, you know, the government sometimes try, people, sometimes people try to make the case for the rainforest by going, the rainforests deliver $25 billion of services to the global economy. You're like, what the fuck are you talking about? We're all dead if there's no rainforest. Right? It's not like delivering services, right? Like, we, you know, it's this bizarre way of talking where we, we act like everything has to be expressed in financial terms and everything has to be defended or opposed in financial terms. And I think that's foolish. <laughs> okay, should I take another uh, question? If anyone wants to ask one. Okay, Oh, there's a woman just here at the front. Uh, so there's someone at the back and then some at the front. Hello. Hello. All right. Um,
3: it's less of a question and um, more of a. This is actually ho- happening locally. Um, I set up a community interest company. Um, I wrote it in two thousand and eleven. It went full time two thousand and fifteen. Um, in Essex. And we use community dinners, we invite people to connect with their community to um, prevent and alleviate ill mental health. After three years of doing it full time, the NHS have recently started to pay us, which is fabulous. Um, And we also support our workforce, we're all on the same wage. Um, And we have weekly meetings where we sit with our customers and we actually. Um, do what they say. So like, that is very similar to so the sort of cooperative. But all our profits go back into our local community to deliver more projects. Um, we currently deliver over 21 a week. So with the NHS five-year forward plan, um, they've now realised that we should be working more preventative. So we hope that in the future that that will that will make a massive difference in within your mental health. So, yeah, it's just nice to know it's
1: happening more locally. That's amazing. What's the name of your organisation?
3: Motivated
1: Minds. Amazing. So there were quite a few people who were asking me in the break about you know, what models are there in Britain. So please go and talk to... The, we put a hand up. Is that, everyone go and talk to this woman. Everybody wants to know how to do this. Go and talk to her. And there was a guy who was asking about community and how people do it here in Britain. The, the, totally, I think, well, you should be really proud of what you're doing. And I think, I think it's amazing.
3: It stems from childhood trauma. <laughs> so um, I learnt from the system that failed. And I didn't have family, it was strangers, like you said, in um, Berlin, that actually helped me and I was homeless. And it was sort of an old lady that was like, come stay with me and all sorts. So um, it was looking at the system, what it was failing, and then finding a way to, um, to make it better for people. And I used to work for job centre, and we have Argos, well, i sorry if anyone was wrong, <laughs> um, but you're saying about Amazon at the time, as Argos too, too. And I was meant to get people into work, and I'd be like, you're not working now. I don't care how there's jobs going, you're not working now. Let's find something that taps into who you are, rather than the need to, to be treated like an animal. So
1: anyway, my name's Carla. <laughs> oh, amazing. I love that. Will you, will you email me about that? I'd really like to know more about it. I think that's totally fascinating. And I think, um, I think you're, 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 you're so right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, I, so uh, I'll just say one thing about that before, and then promise i come to you. The, um, there were so many things in what you said that I just thought were totally, totally amazing. I recently got asked to go and see Jeremy Hunt, and I think you can all imagine what my politics are, and they're quite <laughs> different to Jeremy Hunt's. Um, but I thought, weirdly, I actually met him in a completely different circus years ago. And I thought, OK, what can I say that would actually get through, because I could just talk about all the things they do that I oppose, and he's gonna be like, not right, gonna zone me out, right? But I thought, actually, weirdly, the stuff you're doing, and, and this kind of social prescribing model, like the stuff in East London that I was talking about, is actually, I mean, you, okay, I hate the Tories, but this is pretty compatible with Tory. You know, it, it doesn't cost very much. It saves loads of money down, down the line. Um, the head of the NHS has said that every doctor's surgery should have this social prescribing model. Um, so I think it was one thing where I thought, well, maybe you can break through if you talk. So I just talked a lot about that and how much money it would save and how... I mean, that gardening programme costs literally nothing, right? It's run by volunteers. I'm guessing that what you're doing doesn't cost a fortune. I will say, though, we signed up to social prescribing two years ago and they would not pay us. Right. So um, as an organisation, we were to do it for print. Right, right. Um, it's only literally in the last... I'm very um, tenacious, I think, it's <laughs> <laughs> I went to my NHS with all of my fingers and I was like, You well, are going to pay me. You are going to pay
3: me. And I sold my house to do what I was Amazing. About.
1: And um, luckily, as I said, two months ago, they decided to pay me. And what's but the one thing I found? Uh, there's so many things in what you said that are so amazing, but one of them is you know, you were talking about the old woman who was kind to you. And I think one of the things, you know, we t- we're telling so many stories in the world at the moment about cruelty, right? And one of the things that's so important is that kindness is contagious, right? Someone did something really kind for you. That's led to you doing this amazing kind work for... Exactly. I think that, that, that we, you know, we, we're living in such a culture of public cruelty and public aggression where we're screaming, even like people on my side of politics, so much of what we do is about demonising other people, screaming at them, you know, saying that they're bastards. You know, and of course, there are lots of people who need to be opposed in the world... Yeah. Well. yeah. Totally. Totally, and it's beca- and that becomes that has a kind of contagion. You know, I think you're totally right. I can talk about social media if you want, but I'll take the uh, question from this person here, and then maybe I'll talk about social media. I was just
4: going to add something to the hope in the fact I'm a consultant and I work with businesses that are looking at building autonomous teams and authentic leadership. So, so there is a definite movement and realization that we want uh, people to bring their whole self to work. Uh, and and it to be a joyous thing and and not this um, trauma for everyone. So there there is definitely a move towards that in business, that uh, autonomous team and authentic leadership. But my question is, um, I have a 16-year-old son that um, has had a really tough time recently, sort of last year around um, feeling quite depressed. Thankfully, I, uh, the doctor I sent him to was a brilliant doctor and didn't put him on uh, prescriptions and uh, stuff. But what I would—it would be so lovely because I can't—he won't read your book, <laughs> even though he's—he's he's, he's a reader. No. He just won't. And so it would be so fantastic to have something. He watches YouTube videos all the time. He's into humour. So if you could do something around humour and getting that message across
1: to young lads, it would be so fantastic. Uh, weirdly, my nephew at the back is the same age as your son and he do- makes these videos for me. So, as if by magic. But, the, no, I think essentially this thing about teenagers um, and uh, the... He's lovely. Uh, the, and the thing about uh, teenagers... I was thinking a lot about this because, I mean, we, me and my nephew talk about this all the time, but the... Um, uh, enough my... <laughs> Probably shouldn't tell this story, but I will. We we recently, we recently. My nephew loves Elvis, and we recently I took him to Graceland, and um, I had this experience that to me just distilled how crazy we've all gone. So when you arrive in Graceland now, I've have seen it's cheaper. They don't. There's no guide, so they just give you an iPad and you put in headphones, and you walk around, right? So it says turn left, and it tells you about the room you're in, and it shows you the room you're in in front of you. So what that means is everyone just walks around Graceland staring at an iPad. They could have looked at home. So we were in Elvis's, the the jungle room, right? Elvis's famous jungle room. And this guy is looking down, and he he turns to his wife, and he says, honey, this is amazing. If you swipe left, you can see the room to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see the room to the right. And I said to him, but sir, there's an old-fashioned form of swiping called turning your head, because we are, in fact, in that room. And he just looked completely puzzled and went back to looking at the iPad, and I thought, oh, fucking hell, we've lost it, right? <laughs> but you just see this, all the, like, people who just walk around you know, see, I was recently at an Elton John music concert. People, music concert may sound weirdly old, you know what I mean? <laughs> Elton John gig. Uh, and, um, and, like, the number of people who just watched it through their phone. No one wants to watch your video of Elton John, right? There's loads of videos of Elton John. We don't care. But why are they doing that? They're doing that to display it on social media. I'm at the Elton John gig and you aren't, right? Um, but the, so th- I wanted to think a lot about this. So, um, I went to, one thing about the relationship between social media and social life. So I went to the first ever internet rehab centre in the world. It's in uh, Washington State. In, in, uh, it's in a place called Spokane, just outside of Spokane in Washington State. And I've got to admit, the first thing that happened, I arrived there. Um, and I just totally instinctively, I got out of the car... I glanced at my phone and felt really pissed off there wasn't reception to check my email. I was like, oh wait, you're in the right place, right? But um, I spent a lot of time there, and it's really interesting because I think it might relate to your son, I think it relates to a lot of teenagers. Um, So they get all kinds of people there, but Dr. Hilary Cash, who runs it, explained to me, they disproportionately get young men who are obsessed with these multiplayer role-player games like World of Warcraft, right? And she said to me, got to ask, what do these young men get out of these games? They get the things they used to get from the culture, but they no longer get. They get a sense um, of community. They get a sense that they're good at something, and they can get better at something. They get a feeling they can roam around physically, because the average British child now spends less time outdoors than the average maximum security prisoner. Because by law, a maximum security prisoner has to have 70 minutes a day. The vast majority of British kids don't get that. So they're getting these things, but in a way, what they're getting is like a parody of those things, right? I started to think, I spent a lot of time speaking to these young men there. Um, I started to think, I think the relationship between social media and social life is a bit like the relationship between porn and sex, right? I'm not opposed to porn. It's going to meet a certain basic itch for you. But if your whole sex life consisted of just looking at porn, you'd be going around pissed off the whole time because your deeper needs as a human being would not be met because you didn't evolve to look at... Sexual objects on a screen—you evolved to have sex—and in a similar way, you know, you could all, uh, we could be, you could be learning everything I'm saying now on Facebook Instant Messenger, right? I could be typing this to you, and you would not be hearing me, and I would not feel we were, we were having a conversation, right? That that we did not evolve for this screen-based. So we get into this thing where, in a way, the obsession with screens is a symptom of what's happened, right? If you think about a lot of the trends that we're talking about that are causing depression and anxiety. They were well in place. They were well supercharged before the internet. And what happens is the internet arrives and it looks like the things we've lost, right? You've lost your friends, but here's some Facebook friends. You've lost status. Here's a status update. But it's not the things we lost. The comedian Mark Maron said 90% of all Facebook status updates could be boiled down to the underlying statement, will somebody somewhere please acknowledge I exist? But you end up... So initially, it's an attempt to... Like all addictive behaviour, it's an attempt to fill a hole. But what it does is actually um, not in every and of course there's lots of healthy internet use that that loneliness expert i was talking about john cassiopo he said a good rule of thumb is if the internet is a way station to meeting people offline then you're using it healthily if it's the last stop on the line something's gone wrong for you so it's partly a symptom, an attempt to fill the hole, but then it actually leads to more destructive behaviour. So um, there's a lot of evidence for something called Facebook depression, which is the more time you spend looking at Facebook, the more likely you are to become depressed. And there's a debate about that. Partly what's going on is the more depressed you are, the more likely you are to just stay at home and keep scrolling. But there does also seem to be some evidence that goes the other way. That the, and I think it's related to what I was saying about junk values. What happens when you sit staring at everyone's Facebook all day is you're seeing the kind of curated highlights of the other person's life, often really dishonest curated highlights. I recently, I don't know if I should say, yeah, I can say don't so identify the person. I recently bumped into someone I know who's a big Twitter star. You would all know who she is. Um, and I hadn't seen her in years, and she was miserable as hell, right? And later that day, just out of curiosity, I hadn't looked at her Twitter feed for a long time. I, look, I don't look at it Twitter very much. I looked at her Twitter feed, and five minutes before I bump into her, it's all like, yay, woo, hooray, scream. And 10 minutes afterwards, it's all like this. And you just think, God, this is as fake as a... I understand why she's doing it. I'm not criticising her in any way. It's, her, it's clearly her attempt to keep herself up. But it's as unreal as a Photoshopped, you know, when you see whoever... Uh, being photoshopped, you know, um, so so yeah, I think there's this, 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 this curious relationship where as you look at these curated things and you compare it to your own life, your life seems inferior in relation to these false, just like, you know, if I compared how I looked to Brad Pitt or something, you know, I'm going to feel like shit, um, but, you know, if you compare yourself to everyone else around you, you feel less bad, so... Um, still quite bad, but not that bad. Uh, the, so, yeah, so anyway, that was a very rambling answer but about social media. And uh, yeah, and the answer about your son is, yeah, there is a YouTube channel that my nephew does all the, you know, I've, I reached the point where I stopped trying to follow technological advancements at the exact point when Instagram was invented. I was like, all my slots are full, right? <laughs> but uh, anyway... So, uh, yeah, he's saying follow him, follow him on Instagram. Yeah, it's true. Uh, great. So, um, shall I take the next question? I think they're going to pull me off stage soon, but just wait, whoever is in charge, wave at me when I have to finish. But, great. Hello. Hello. Um, I was really interested when you talked about the group bike company where they mm-hmm. set up their own cooperative. And um, I came across um, a concept called holocracy. What's it? Uh, hold, the, can you hold the mic. Oh, these are the guys in Vegas. Yeah, I do know about this, yeah. yeah. Um, so they were trying to kind of implement it on a, on a bigger scale. I just kind of wonder when you, when you thought about how a cooperative kind of structure
2: could scale. Yeah.
1: Oh, it's really important. So um, this is a really important question, and um, we don't look at individual failures of individual corporations and say that means the corporate model doesn't work, right? You know, like so we don't. BHS fails, and no one goes, oh well, corporations didn't work out for them then. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And so of course there are going to be individual examples of cooperatives that don't don't work. And um, I looked a bit at the Zappos people because, funny enough, I was just in Vegas where they they do their stuff, and. Um, I found them really aggravating, I have to admit. But but they just speak in that very kind of California jargony, you know. And we're going to create circles that interconnect with other circles. And you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, it's slightly aggravating. But I'm sure there's some value in it, but it annoys me. But but no, the, the... so in terms of these the successful models, there are loads of successful models all over the world. So a great example, if you're interested in looking into this more Mondragon the, in Catalonia, one of the most successful large cooperative models in the world. You know, they employ f- figures more than 150,000 people, and they've survived a really long time. They're one of the great legacies of the kind of um, left-wing part of the Spanish Revolution in the 30s. Um, so, yeah, I think there's, 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 there's loads of really great models and we've got to pioneer more and more models. But of course, the whole society is structured around corporations, right? So it shouldn't be surprising that when we start... Oh, in the same way, if you imagine the first gay people to make their case in you know, the 1870s got very quickly cut down uh, in, in devastating ways. Um, you know, sometimes these fights take a long time. You have to keep being cut down and keep sticking your head up and, and carry on until you until you prevail. But there are loads of really good models of, co- of cooperatives uh, all over the world. So, yeah. Yeah, the, the example that I think Holocracy tries to look at is that when a city doubles in size, um, productivity and innovation increases. Yeah. But when a corporation doubles in size, it
4: tends to
2: actually
1: decrease. So it's just this kind uh, much, but... Um... I think you're totally right. And co- co- I mean, we think about this, right? Corporations are fundamentally undemocratic, obviously, right? Tr- try try standing up to your boss and see how long it lasts, right? The, the, um, and, and we know democracies are more efficient than dictatorships, right? Why is South Korea 50 times richer than North Korea when starting out in 1953, when the two countries are divided, they were equally wealthy, right? Pretty much equally wealthy. Well, it's because South Korea is a democracy. had a long struggle to get there, but it's a democracy. And North Korea is a vicious dictatorship. And the reason that democracies are more efficient than dictatorships is because in a dictatorship, you've only got one person's brain on the problem and everyone else is frightened, right? In a democracy, you've got... Well, South Korea, whatever it is, population of South Korea is about 40 million, I think. You've got 40 million brains on the problem, right? So obviously, you know, the more democratic your institute... This is why I studied in Cornell University found that more democratic businesses are on average four times, grow four times faster than non-democratic businesses. Although I stress again, I don't think the case for this should be overwhelmingly made about economic efficiency. But, you know, you want to have more brains that are more committed on every problem and the, and, and the more democratic they are. But so I think it's, you're totally right, we need to experiment with lots of different models of this. We've basically had 100 years of the society only experimenting with one model, corporations, which has led to all sorts of problems along with some good things. Um, and we need to have much more democratic institutions. And it's also important to say, you know, I'm a lefty, but this is not a particularly anti-capitalist argument, right? Baltimore Bikes is a capitalist business. It operates in the marketplace. Um, the question is, what are the institu- what's the institution that operates, that competes in the market, right? Corporations are one thing that can compete in the marketplace, but cooperatives can as well. Now, I think there's lots of restrictions you should put on markets, but I do think markets are valuable and important. So it's, this is not like a kind of mad, you know, far-out lefty idea. This is actually a pretty, I think, pretty centrist idea. Great. So I don't know when they're going to throw me out of here, but I'll take, a couple, I'll take two more if that's OK. There's a woman here. Microphone, i Oh, I'm pretty loud, anyway. <laughs> you are naturally loud, but hang on one second. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, if I could pass the town then I'll I'll come back to so I promise I'll come back to you if you were about to Great, All thank right. you. Thank you. Um so
5: you kind of in related to the last thing that we've talked mm-hmm. about. do you think they would feel more like a part of something bigger than themselves? In a the sense of that, um, yeah, if they're doing something that is morally valuable and good for the society at large, and the company that they work for doing that values them that whether they've got control, lots of control over what they do, whether that still alleviates pressure.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's really really important, that question. And I think it relates to something that I learned about that I found surprisingly challenging as well. Um, So I went to interview this woman called Brett Ford, who's an amazing academic. She was at Berkeley at the time. She's um, in Toronto now. And she did this research that seems kind of simple in a way. They wanted to figure out if you tried, if any of you guys tried to deliberately make yourself happier, to spend more time trying to make yourself happier, say two hours a day, would you actually become happier? And they did this research in four countries, in the US, in China, in Russia, and in Japan. What they found, at first seems really odd, in the US, if you try to make yourself happier, you do not become happier. But in the other societies, if you try to make yourself happier, you do become happier. And at first they're like, what's what's going on here? So they did more research, and what they found is, in the US, if you try to make yourself happier, generally what you do is do something for yourself, right? You try to buy something for yourself, you try to get a promotion, you try to um, you know, um, show off on Instagram, whatever it is, right? In the other societies, if you try to make yourself happier, generally you do something for someone else, right? You, you try, you know, do something for your friends, your family, your community. So we have an instinctively individualistic idea of what it means to be happy, And they have an instinctively collective idea of what it means to be happy. It turns out our model of happiness just doesn't work very well, right? We're not that species. A species of individualists would have died out on the savannas of Africa years ago, right? So I think there's, um, uh, I think that fits with organisations as well, right? Organisations that promote a kind of ruthless, competitive, you're all pitted against each other individualism are going to just be less happy organisations Of course, there's a healthy element of competition amongst all humans. It's not an either or thing. But I think certainly organisations that promote are more we're in this together, we're looking out for each other, we care about each other. That's good. Those are going to have lower levels of depression. I mean, I think with, with corporations, obviously these things, it's not about whether people are nice or nasty. It's you've got to tightly regulate them. We know there's loads of evidence if corporations aren't regulated, they do all sorts of terrible things. They, you know, The banking sector was deregulated. It gambled with all our money and crashed the entire global economy, uh, oil companies aren't regulated largely, they're trashing the climate, you know, so obviously regulation is, is essential, it's not about just appealing to them to be nice, right, it's you've got to tightly regulate them. Should I take one more one more question, or two, two I, I don't know how long I'm meant to go for, but I think they said like 20 yeah, so I'll take, t- I'll take two more if there are two more, there's a woman here who I snatched the microphone, so I promise I'll, can we, do you want to go to this woman first, just because I promised her, and then we'll come back to you, sorry sorry, I felt like I was Snubbing you cruelly.
5: Um, My question is kind of going back to the idea of teenagers being depressed. Uh, Because these days, depression is at peak at teenage years, just before the end of school. And I think that has a lot to do with the idea of lacking control and the fear of your future. Because um, I know I was for sure definitely unsure of what I'm going to do in my future when I finish school. And even going in university, I still don't know what I'm going to do after I finish university. And it's just basically following the rules all the time, of uh, lecturers telling you what to do, of teachers um, let- telling you what to do, and you need to ask for permission to go to the toilet, but you're supposed to make the most important decision of your life, um, that basically will decide, of will you succeed or fail? At least that's how they make us think for most of the time and I have a lot of friends who had the same troubles as me when they were at school and I know a lot of people because I used to volunteer with teenagers um, in orphanages and um, everyone's just, not everyone, but a lot of people is going through the same issues and how would you advise how to deal with that? How
1: yeah, people? so I took a lot of this lot with my nephew as w- as well and the, the um there's, 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 two, I think there's two aspects of what you're saying. So one is the instinct you have is totally right and there's useful scientific evidence about control. So there's really interesting research that showed, um, I interviewed the guy who did this, I thought it was totally fascinating. So in Canada, they have um, what, what in the US they would call Native Americans, they call First Nations people. There are 192 First Nations groups in Canada, what they used to call tribes, right? And First Nations people in Canada, there's some Canadian people here I know, have horrifically high suicide rates. But this guy who I interviewed, um, um, Professor Michael Chandler, did this really fascinating research. So what he discovered is 192 of these groups, some of them have extremely high suicide rates and some have no suicide rates at all. No suicides at all, right? So he started doing loads of research. What's going on here? Why? why what explains the difference? Spent 10 years researching this. What he discovered is some First Nations groups in Canada have regained control of their community, right? So they control their fire service, their police, they've rebuilt their language, they you know they control their school system and some have been so kept down that they haven't regained any control over their community. And the suicide rate correlates extremely closely with the amount of control that they have over the collective control they have over their community. So I think you're totally right this is part of a big body of evidence. Feeling you have no control over your future is psychologically devastating, right? It's terrible for you. Um, so how do we give people back control over the future? I think there's lots of things, but there's one experiment also happened in Canada. I think it's really interesting. In the early 1970s, there was this experiment with... Um, so the Canadian government carried out an experiment. They chose a town. They seem to have genuinely chosen it at random. It was a town called Dauphin in Manitoba. Um, and they, they said to a load of people in this town, um, from now on, We're going to give you a guaranteed basic income. Uh, It was the equivalent of about 12,000 pounds in today's British money. They said there's nothing you have to do in return for this money, and there's nothing you can do that means we're going to take this money away. We just want you to have a nice life, right? And it was followed, they did it for three years, and it was followed to see what would happen. And loads of interesting things happened. There was um, almost nobody stopped working. But a lot of people uh, held out for better jobs, quit their held out for better jobs. So overall, work standards improved. People spent more time with their children. People studied more. But actually, the biggest thing that happened was a really big fall in depression and anxiety, and um, depression anxiety that was so severe, people had to be shut away in hospitals. That alone fell by nine percent, and and I think this is totally fits with this this, this wider evidence, which is. Uh, What is that doing? It's giving people back a sense of control about the future, right? If you knew that when you left university, you would have 12 grand a year to live on unconditionally, you wouldn't be humiliated. You know, 12 grand, you're not going to have a great life, right? But you're not going to be terribly insecure. You're not going to be pervasively insecure with that money. Um you would feel a lot more confident about the future, right? You've got a baseline on on which to stand. Of course, the welfare state is meant to do this, but as the, you you know, from working in the job center, in fact, our welfare state does the exact opposite, increases humiliation and insecurity. It breaks people even more. Um, So I think we need to be looking at these, uh, and uh, I think actually the case for universal basic income is much stronger now than it was in the 70s. Barack Obama in the last year of his presidency said he thinks we're going to have to do this in the next 20 years because the job market is becoming so, you know, there's going to be such a churn in the job market. We all know robots are coming for our jobs. Think about the fact, for example, half a million people in Britain make a living through driving, mostly men. Mostly men who left school when they were 16. This is a kind of low threshold job people feel they can do. That half million jobs are not going to exist in 10 years' time. None of them. Self-driving cars are going to take over very quickly, if you look at the evidence, right? Um, what's going to happen to all those people? You know, that's just one example of many in terms of these technological disruptions. So we need to be giving people a baseline of security about the future, knowing even if there's big disruptions in the work environment, even if there's big disruptions in the world. You're going to be have a certain baseline and you can count on that and you know you've got that in the future. That's not the entire solution, but I think it's a big part of it. So you're totally right. Lack of control makes people depressed. Feeling they don't have a sense of the future makes people depressed. And giving them back those things is one... is a Well, the leading expert on that programme, Dr Evelyn Forget, said to me, universal basic income, that's an antidepressant. So um, I'll just take the last... Um, the woman in... I, I can't hear you, without the microphone I won't be able to hear you, so I'll just go to this woman and then I'll come to you if that's okay. Great, great, um, thanks. Hello. I don't know
5: if we've got time to answer
1: oh, sorry. comprehensively, but I just wonder why are we not talking to our neighbours? I, I would love to
5: connect more with people on my street. I only get to do it during Halloween when I drive my daughter
4: trick-or-treating. <laughs> I, I don't see them any other time, they've got the headstand, they've got headphones in. Uh,
5: is it affluence? Is it um, we don't need each other as much? Is it depression and anxiety? I just wondered what your thoughts were.
1: Yeah, it's a big, big question, but i just say a short answer, which is um, you're surrounded by people who are asking the same question, right? And think about what happened at Cotty. It only took one person for this to start. I really think it's just we've got to just start, right? People are so hungry for it. They're so hungry for reconnection. I think we've just got to just begin. Great, and um, I'll just go to the woman at the front. So, uh, they won't be able to hear you and I can't hear you, so just hang on a second, I'll give you the, uh, if you just pass the microphone forward. Sorry, I'm just so deaf at the moment. Uh, I'm not normally this deaf, I don't know what's happened to me. Mm-hmm.
4: Thank you. So, uh, just adding to her question, I, I, I'm not sure, I think it's Denmark and I'm not sure how it works, but uh, there is a system that you get paid to go to university and uh, you have more control over your life.
1: Yeah, well, there used to be a country called Britain where you were paid to go to university. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean
4: to...
1: Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I think you're totally, totally right, and there are lots of societies... Yeah, yeah. Well, the most successful economy in, in the whole of Europe, Germany, funds students much, much better than we do. So, there's, you know, again, it's not... Um, you know, I mean, I love Denmark, don't get me wrong, but the Germans, the, the German, they were popular to praise the Germans in Britain, but they, they do a good job on this. Uh, okay, great, so I will sign any books you want to buy, as long as you don't ask me to write anything insane. Thank you very much. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you. Thanks.
0: Hey, guys, Niall here again. Just one more quick thing before you go. If you're interested in getting early access to our latest psychology lectures and discounts on our live events, don't forget to go to theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast And enter your email to sign up. That's theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show.